Thank you, music team, and good morning, Valley Bible Church. It's good, as always, to see you guys. Seems like more and more each week. That's cool, too. Um, like that last song, I've heard a popular preacher once say, our kind of church believes in the Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures, and we leave out the Spirit. But I don't think it is idolatry to be a Bible church, because when we hear God's Word spoken, we hear God's Word spoken, and we love to hear God talk. And so if you have your copy of God's Word this morning, I would invite you to take it and turn to John chapter 6. And if you are able and willing, would you stand one last time with me to honor the reading of God's Word? We read this morning a familiar story, but one I think will hold some fascinating insight for us today. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, says this, After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about five thousand. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up, and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Would you pray with me? Our Father who art in heaven, this morning we gather as your children and we do desire to express the gratitude that we have for the relationship we have come to be in with you through your Son, Jesus Christ. We know that our sins are forgiven. We know that you are our Father. By your Spirit and through your Word dwelling within us, we are able to become strong and to overcome the evil one and the system which currently controls this world. And yet we desire through these things to grow into a deeper knowledge and relationship with you, the one who has been from the beginning. And we look forward to that day when you will return and set all things aright. And yet we look around and we see so much that is wrong. And yet we are reminded, even this world in its brokenness is following your plan 
and is working ahead towards your purposes. And I pray that this morning as we study the life of your son, we would be encouraged to put our faith in him aright and in complete submission to that will that is unfolding so that we might be found faithful children in your sight and for the glory of your son. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's an interesting pattern I'm observing in human behavior. I know I'm a young lad, but I'm eventually catching on. Having to do with choosing of leaders, seen some interesting examples even in our society of late. And did you notice there's a new country in America over there in Seattle? They almost made it two weeks before bloodshed, tragically. But the pattern I'm thinking of is a tendency to find and pick leaders exclusively on the basis of either how much stuff or how much status following that leader will give you, rather than how admirable or desirable the character of that leader is. And it's a pattern I've noticed starts pretty young, as in like the early elementary years. Maybe some of you kids have done this. If you'll play my game and let me be in charge then you can use my cool toy. Right? Kids who find that tactic effective grow up and later in life become politicians who employ the very same technique and often enjoy similar success. And the really successful ones achieve to that highest of all status for those who play this game, that of becoming a dictator. But notice how many times in history... It isn't even just the ambition of a dictator or of a manipulative leader that propels a person into that position of power. It is the pressing desire of the people. In Israel's own history, do you remember that time they did this? They said, I want a king. We want to be cool like all those other countries around us. Where's some tall, dark, and handsome fellow that'll make us look good? They found him hiding behind a bunch of donkeys, which is hard to do when you're tall, dark, and handsome. And they made Saul their king. That didn't work out very well, did it? About a thousand years after that attempt, the nation of Israel is going to try to do the exact same thing. And for similar reasons. This time they're going to have the right king, but they're going to still be trying to crown him for the wrong reasons. Our text this morning is very well known, but it's also very misunderstood. And so I wanted to clear up a couple things right at the very beginning. The main walk away this morning is that if you will give all of your money as a seed offering, your five loaves and your two fish, then whatever you want God to do for you is guaranteed to happen within one month's time. Actually, no, that's not, not what this passage is about at all. It's not even about maximizing the little that you have and letting God make the most of it. Though perhaps that's an illustration you could see. That's not what the passage is about. This passage is, however, very important. And the lesson that it's teaching is one that God does not want us to miss because of all the miracles that Jesus did in his entire life, only one is recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, 
and John, and it's this miracle. This passage is about Jesus proving that he is the Messiah. This passage is about demonstrating how easily we get excited about a Messiah for the wrong reasons. And this passage is about setting up for us and illustrating how Jesus is the bread of life. And I think if we understand what's happening in this passage this morning, we may find that it really does comfort, correct, and clarify what may be some of the most frustrating and deceptive errors in our own walk with the Lord. And it all comes down to how true faith is meant to operate in our lives. And that's why, especially if you kids got your note sheets this morning, our title is A Tale of Food and Faith. A Tale of Food and Faith. And the first thing we see this morning in our passage is that true faith trails the Savior, not the signs. True faith trails the Savior, not the signs. Look with me there at the beginning of verse 1. It says, After these things Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. And so we've got Jesus on the move again. Remember, he had just given that incredible defense of himself as the Messiah by marshalling all those witnesses that Ben walked us through last week. But now he is going to move around to the far side of the Sea of Galilee. I've got a little map to show you guys, because maps are cool. Uh, I've colored in in the darker yellowish section. That is actually the modern-day Golan Heights. So if you uh, hear that term thrown around in the news, that's where we're talking about. But Jesus is going to move from the west side of the Sea of Galilee, we don't know exactly where he was, to the east side. And he's going to go by boat, we find out from the other uh, accounts of this and the other Gospels. Whereas the crowd is going to run around the north side of the lake on foot and catch up with him on that far side. And the reason why John puts in this little note that the sea is also called Tiberias is because this lake went by a number of different names. In the Old Testament, it was called Kinnereth, which is the Hebrew word for lyre, the instrument that you play, not like, you're a liar. Uh, the instrument you play looks kind of like a guitar, right? Uh, and so that was, they thought that kind of had that shape to it, so they named it, hey, it's a lake, looks like a liar. And then in the New Testament, it became called Tiberias, because you can see a little city there with a box around it. Uh, Herod Antipas founded a city there to you know, impress the Caesar at the time, whose name was Tiberius. He's like, I named a city after you. It's on the Lake Lyre. <laughs> but you know, it caught on, and the name Tiberius eventually became associated not just with the city, but with the lake. So that's why you run into some of those different, different names. And Galilee is the region where that lake is located. So if you run across those different names in your Bible, it's not because... They were making up names for a lake they didn't know. It's because it went by different names at the time. But they start moving across to this east side of the lake, and you can see there, continuing on in our text, a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And we'll find out just how large this crowd is a little later, but note for now the reason that they are following him. It is because of the signs he was performing on those who were sick. And coming out of chapter 5, think of all the reasons they should have been following him. They should have been following him because the Father testifies of the Son, because the Scriptures testify of the Son, because the Son testifies of himself. And yes, the signs and miracles affirm that, but it should be the words of the witnesses to who excuse me, to who Jesus is that is attracting the people. 
But they're just in it for the tricks. They're just in it for the show. They're like people going to a wedding just for the free food. They're like people joining the army just to see the world. Or going to the theater just to hang out in the lobby and eat popcorn. We can miss the Savior too. And John has been harping on this in his gospel. Don't follow Jesus just because of the cool tricks that he can do or that you want him to do for you. Follow him for who he is. And as we get ready to move on in our text this morning, I want to stop and pause and just consider a couple quick ways that I think we can easily miss the Savior. Here's a couple signs that we are missing the Savior this morning. And the first is this. We know the perks, but we don't know the person. We know the perks, not the person. We know much more about what Jesus can do for us than about who he is. We have our very well-worn copy of the prayer of Jabez that we've read and reading and rereading. We're ready to live our best lives now. We're claiming the promises of God, even if those promises aren't actually in the Bible. Or if they are, they weren't actually made to us. Or we think somehow, if I pray and go to church, and God's going to help me get that raise at work. Or, or my kids are going to start magically obeying all the time, right? And there's a side of evangelicalism in America that views Jesus, views God almost like a genie that we're trying to constantly learn how to manipulate into doing cool tricks for us. And so we love studying the passages with the miraculous and where Jesus does these amazing things. We're trying to figure out what levers do I pull to make Jesus do all the miracles in my life that I want. Rather than saying, who is this man, Jesus Christ, who is God? How can I know him? That's chasing the signs and not chasing the Savior. Secondly, we value tricks over truth. We value tricks over truth. Our confidence in Christ is attached to our circumstances and not attached to his word. And you want to have a roller coaster of doubt in your life about your salvation? Make this mistake. Hitch your assurance of salvation to what you think God is doing in your circumstances rather than to the character of God revealed in his word. Because then when life is easy, God is so good. I'm so blessed. Can't you see how real God is? But then when life is really painful, and too many of you know in ways I can't even imagine that life can be really painful, well, not, God's broken. He's defective. He's non-functioning. Maybe he doesn't even exist. He's not doing the right stuff anymore. And that can be a cruel roller coaster to ride because when we need the comfort of our relationship with him most, we can be most easily tempted to doubt that he is there. That's not true faith. That's chasing signs. We're looking for a product and not a person, a loving person. 
And one really practical, quick way to do a heart checkup on this one, and kids, listen up, because this is a habit that I formed when I was young, and I've been still trying to break. Listen to your prayers. Listen to your prayers. Are your prayers essentially a long list of tricks that you want Jesus to perform for you or a conversation in which you are trying to get to know him, to submit to him, to grow and be changed by him? When we pray, God, I want my friend to get better. That's not wrong. But do you also pray for that friend or that loved one to suffer well? If that's God's will, to know Jesus more, to grow in godliness through this circumstance that God has allowed into their life? Or do we just want God to perform the signs? Jesus is not a gimmick, and he refuses to be treated like one, as we shall soon see. But first, there is another and perhaps even more common way of missing the essence of true faith, and that's in verses 3 through 9, where we see that true faith trusts the source and not the system. True faith trusts the source, not the system. Look with me at the beginning of verse 3 there. It says this, Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. So Jesus sits around the Sea of Galilee, and when he did so, his intent was not to draw a huge crowd, Instead, it was to find a quiet place in which he could be with his disciples. As I mentioned, in the area that is now known as the Golan Heights, we don't know exactly what mountain he was going to. It's just a mountainous region. But Jesus goes, finds a nice place, sits down to teach and fellowship with just a few people, his disciples around him. And then John throws in this little historical note in verse 4 that's very important. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. As we've mentioned a number of times, John really keys in on feasts in his book because whenever they come up, he is not usually just making some kind of a, a, well, this is what time of the year it was, note. He is trying to draw out something theological for us. And this Passover, like the other two Passovers that are mentioned in John, one in chapter 2 we've already seen, one in John chapter 11 we'll get to, is theologically significant. At the first Passover, you remember, Jesus highlighted in his teaching that he was the true temple and that if you destroyed him, he would be raised up again in three days. The final Passover in the book of John will be the one in which Jesus dies on the cross. But this middle Passover, and John focusing on this account, is underscoring important imagery about the Messiah that we don't want to miss. In particular, the imagery of food. And so follow this, because there's something that comes together in Jesus that ties together two massive themes in your Old Testament in a way that intersect with incredible blessing for you and for me, and in a way that they did not see coming in the Old Testament. And the first theme is this. Whenever the Passover is in view, so is the sacrifice of the substitutionary lamb. That lamb you would take into your home that you would care for and then have to bring and have slain for your sin. Body and blood demanded from sinful men for atonement with God. But the second theme that is particularly highlighted in this chapter 
It's brought forward as the image here at the beginning, and then Jesus teaches on that image at the back half of the chapter, is the image of bread. Jesus as the true bread, and more specifically, Jesus as the bread from heaven, the ultimate gift of manna for man. Food, and as we've already seen, drink, these are God's given gifts to be the source of gracious life for us. In the wilderness, they had manna from heaven, and God opened rocks to give them drink. And Jesus says, I am the true bread from heaven. I am the true living waters. And in me, you have not just the temporary meeting of your earthly needs, you have eternal life. And so here in this chapter, we're actually going to see both these themes intersecting together. He is the Lamb of God, a title that's emphasized uniquely in John's Gospel. His body and blood are the sacrifice demanded by God's holiness, but he is also the bread of life and living water. His body and blood are not only what is demanded by God, they are what is given from God. He is going to be the substitute for our sin. He is also the gracious gift of heaven that gives us eternal life. Body and blood, bread and drink. Man, I wish there was a good symbolic way to latch on to those symbols. Perhaps sealed up in nice little... Anyway, we'll get to that later. The final Passover sacrifice, the unending feast of manna from heaven. So John is priming our minds with this reference to Passover so that we'll be extra sensitive to catch all the imagery in this passage and in the whole chapter that we're about to dive into. And having set that stage for us, in verse 5 it says, Then therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, so we mentioned earlier Jesus didn't go to, to gather a huge crowd. He went to be alone with his disciples, but now he looks up and realizes, oh, we've got company. He had come across on a boat. They'd gone up alone, but the, the crowd that had been running around the north side of the Sea of Galilee and telling people along the way, Jesus is over there. Come with us. There's a huge crowd now that Jesus sees coming around the lake to see him. And so Jesus turns to Philip and says, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. In our passage, it kind of looks like the question is asked as the crowd is beginning to approach. But as we read this account in the other Gospels, especially Mark 6, we know that this actually is a question Jesus asked hours after the crowd had arrived, and he had been teaching the people at length. When Jesus saw the crowd coming around the lake towards him, the Bible says he felt great compassion for them, because this mob was charging towards him as he observed like sheep without a shepherd. And I wonder for Jesus that this was particularly poignant because we also find out in Matthew 14 that one of the things that occasioned Jesus slipping away for some time by himself with his disciples was he had just learned that the last of the Old Testament prophets, the last true shepherd of Israel that preached the Messiah, John the Baptist had just been beheaded. More than ever, the people needed real, godly leadership. 
Have you ever observed crowds of people with deep, unmet longings of the soul flocking together after anything that seems to promise some kind of satisfaction? Jesus sure did. And he saw behind the misguided chasing of outward signs and miracles an inward craving of the soul that he himself designed and put there. A craving designed to be satisfied only in him. And so when the people arrive, he doesn't begin healing or working miracles. He begins teaching them truth, trying to shepherd them towards what they really need. And time passes. And the hour becomes late in the day. And the people are starting to notice, what's that rumbling sound in the, in the crowd? Oh, it's our tummies. We are hungry. And so Jesus, having taught the people, now as the master teacher, he decides this is a great chance to teach something to my disciples. And what follows is a pretty epic setup as far as setups go. And yes, Jesus set people up, so you can too. (laughs) Jesus turns to Philip and asks, in a nice way, right? Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? But notice that the purpose of his question was a test. And test is an interesting word. It's sometimes translated as tempt, to entice to something evil. But it can also simply be a word that means to reveal something by experimentation. To set up an opportunity that will demonstrate something to be true or false. And that can be across across quite a range of things. Maybe uh, you have experienced something like, I double dog dare you to jump your bicycle over the stream. A test. One not historically very successful. Or another test. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and to do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard, because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. A test. As far as Philip is concerned, though, Jesus just double-dog dared him to jump his bicycle over the moon. But that's the point. Jesus is doing something really important here. He is evoking, to use a great phrase that I I steal from Ben. He's one of the pastors that has used this the most in my life. To evoke real faith. To draw it out by emphasizing the problem of relying on human strength instead of relying on the divine Jesus Christ himself. And so Philip falls right on his face. But be sympathetic because we would have two, right? Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Philip responds with some quick math. If we had a bunch of money and divided it by a bunch of people, we will have approximately not enough. A denarius was the average wage paid for a full day of hard labor. And so 200 denarii was about eight months full wages for a person. And Philip says, that wouldn't even be enough if the local Walmart had enough food. 
We couldn't buy enough for all these people to even have a little. Money is not going to be sufficient, even if you had the ideal circumstances where that could be obtained. And so, as we find out in the other Gospels, Jesus sent them out to go find food. All this talking about food has got me thinking about lunch. Anybody else want to get some lunch later? Is there anybody here this morning, maybe, that got something on the way in, maybe brought a little food that might be willing to consider sharing with us? Anybody out there? should be somebody out there who has a little something. Who's, who's got a little something for one of us? Oh, I see, there we go. There, young man, what do you got to share with us? What's there in your bag? What do you got there? Oh, <laughs> well, you got some little bread cakes in there? How many of those you got? Yeah, how many of those you got? Five. Nice. How old are you? Almost nine? Oh, so not quite enough. But you have anything else in the bag, maybe? How many fishies you got? Huh? Two. Would you be willing to share those with everybody? Yeah? That's really sweet. So how, how many pieces do you think you're going to have to tear that into? Exactly. The answer is too many. Well, how about we'll just stay hungry and you can enjoy a little snack if your parents let you. But that's what happened here, right? He says, go find some food. And they're looking around. He's like, well, there's a kid who's got a snack. And you see loaves, and we're thinking like American loaves. But no, think little barley cakes. And two little fish, probably little sardines, little preserved small fish. And again, it doesn't take a lot of math genius to figure this out. Five cakes plus two sardines divided by a huge crowd equals hungry people. And so they're completely flummoxed. We find out from the, other, from the other Gospels, they are like, Jesus, just send them home. They're hungry. Stop preaching. Let them go home. It's an impossible situation. But Jesus has a plan. And not only a plan, but a lesson. The disciples are hung up on the fact that they don't have enough food on hand or enough money to acquire food, and they're missing the fact that standing there talking to them is the creator of the universe, the word who was from the beginning, who was with God and who was God, and through whom everything was made that has been made. And he has just declared that the next meal is on him. We do not want to argue ability when God demands obedience. We do not want to argue ability when God demands obedience. There's our lesson here. I have noticed that there's often a high degree of confidence that God is going to definitely do something miraculous when we decide that God is calling us to do something that is relatively ill-advised. Jesus just gave me such a peace about this new get-rich-quick plan. I'm sure it's going to work out miraculously. But what about the impossible-sounding things that he actually does tell you to do? Forgive your spouse, your friend, your boss for the terrible things they have done and said in the past. 
go through the trial before you, not around it. Talk to your boss about those unethical business practices that could cost you your job. Hey, kids, how about obey your father and mother as a rambunctious four-year-old or a rambunctious 14-year-old? God has called us to do some things that are often, from a human standpoint, truly impossible. And one of the things that I think we need to learn how to do is what you might call asking forward. Learn how to ask forwards. And by that I mean, we don't have to say when God says, hey, I want you to approach this situation and you're feeling like, I have no capacity to do that. You can go to God and say, I don't know what to do, but do it leaning forward. If you imagine you're approaching a building with a door there and on the other side of the door is an impossible to imagine trial and hardship and God says, go through the door. There's one person that says, I can't do that. And another person who says, I can't do that. Faith is not saying, I've got this. Faith is recognizing you don't got this, and so you take the next step forward with your eyes on heaven saying, you better got this. And I know you do. And that's what was missing from this account. It, it wasn't that they, they should have said, oh, well, I'm sure the food's around here somewhere. But they should have said, that's impossible. Good thing you're Jesus. What do you want me to do? That's what was missing. Don't argue ability when God demands obedience. Ask forwards. We are following Jesus, not just his cool miracles. We're relying on Jesus as the source of our power, not our own ingenuity and clever systems. But there is a final lesson about faith in this passage, and it goes even deeper still. So look with me as our last point this morning in verses 10 to 15. True faith transforms the soul, not the situation. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, number about 5,000. Jesus has the people sit down there. It's spring. It's, it's about time for Passover, which is nice because it's like this teeny, tiny, narrow window of time when there's grass and it's green. If you go to Israel, it is crazy how this works. Brown, barren, desolate place, rains, bam, blue, uh, green, lush, gorgeous. Two weeks later, bam, back to brown, dead, desolate. But it's a very nice day. And he says, sit down, enjoy, sit on that nice grass there. And this is not a simple undertaking, though, because this crowd of people that are sitting down is at least 5,000 heads of household, men, which is kind of how they tended to count grouped people. And so there could have easily been as many have estimated as many, when you include the women and children, as many as 20,000 people in this crowd, I was like, huh, I wonder kind of what that would look like in our context. I looked at a map of Spokane Valley. We got about 100,000 people in Spokane Valley. I tried to divide it roughly into fifths. So if I did it right, basically it means this crowd could have been the equivalent of everybody from 32nd up to the freeway and from Pines to Sullivan over for lunch. Spread across this hillside. And not just, hey, everybody, sit down. 
But we find out from the other Gospels that they are carefully organized. Mark tells us they were grouped into hundreds and fifties. They are set out not just to sit down, but to be served in an orderly fashion. Jesus isn't just helping the crowd get comfortable. He is organizing them for a meal. And that's why in verse 11 we see Jesus then took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Jesus taking these loaves in front of all the people, this little meager token of a meal, gives thanks to his Father for the feast that does not yet exist. Very likely Jesus would have given the traditional prayer of thanks for bread recited by Jews down to this day. Baruch atar Melech ha'alom ha'matzi lechem min ha'aretz. Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Having prayed, he passes out the bread and keeps passing out the bread and keeps passing out the bread and keeps passing out the bread. I don't know how they distributed it, but they kept distributing it until everybody had had as much bread and fish, not only as they needed, but as says specifically in the text, as much as they wanted, until they were filled. Jesus is not a meager host. He gives bountifully, bountifully until no more can be received. And then after the meal, Jesus sends the disciples around. Go collect what's been uneaten. The food, good food sitting there that people just couldn't find a way to scarf down anymore. And they return with 12 baskets full. And man, there's a lot of ink spilled on the 12 baskets full. Maybe it's one for each disciple. Maybe it's representative of Jesus' provision for the 12 tribes of Israel. One thing is for sure, it represents a lot of food. More than enough. Of all the miracles of Jesus, this one perhaps most clearly demonstrates his power as creator. He thanks God who is able to bring forth the food from the earth, and then Jesus does that very thing. So how will the people respond? Will they finally recognize Jesus as the Messiah and bow to him? Well, so close. And yet so far, look at verses 14 and 15, and we'll close with these verses. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. The crowds, they followed Jesus because of his miracles of healing Then they sat under his teaching all day, but it didn't seem to really sink in. And it's only after they see this last miracle that they finally say, this is the prophet, the prophet like Moses that was spoken of in Deuteronomy 18. And here is where they fail. Because in Jesus they see a prophet. In Jesus, as we see in verse 15, they also see a king. But they view him through a lens of selfishness. 
Both Jesus and John preached a gospel of repentance because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But you do not see the crowds falling to their knees, asking Jesus to free them from sin. Instead, there's this swell of rebellious nationalism and they intend to take Jesus by force and start a political coup. Down with the Romans. Long live miraculous healings. Long live free food. Man, that just never seems to go away. (laughs) Jesus, however, is not that kind of king. He's not a magic talisman we grab to fix our circumstances. He is a Lord. He is a master. He is a savior. He doesn't come to do our bidding. He comes and bids us to do his. And so Jesus retreats. And there's just an almost melancholy sadness to this closing scene. 20,000 sheep who need to follow a shepherd, trying desperately to grab hold of the true shepherd and make him follow the sheep. And there goes Jesus, slipping away into the mountain, leaving the din of full bellies, passionate hearts, and misguided minds behind. Two lessons as we close. First, remember who bows to whom. Remember who bows to whom. Don't make requirements of the king. Ask what the king requires of you. And secondly, conformity more than convenience. When surrounded by so many demonstrations of the grace of God, it's easy for us, especially in America where comforts are often plentiful, to just be thinking, how do I get more? How do I get more? How do I get more? Instead, when we look at the gracious Savior that we serve, we should be constantly asking, how can I be more like him? How can I be more like him? How can I be more like him? The true king left what should have been his loyal subjects because they did not understand what was going on. They followed signs instead of the Savior. They trusted in human systems instead of the divine source And they wanted a king who would change their circumstances and not a Lord who would transform their souls. And so we dare not make the same mistake. And that is part of the beauty of communion and that it invites us to come back together as one body and declare and remember what it's all about, who it's all about. I'd like to invite the music team to come forward at this time. And we're going to have a chance in just a minute to reflect on a song written by a monk born over 900 years ago. It's an old one. His name was Bernard from the town of Clairvaux. Martin Luther said of him, he was the best preacher of any doctor of the church in all of history including he thought this guy was a better preacher than St. Augustine or St. Augustine, which for all you nerds out there, that's a big deal. And compared to the contributions of all other monks in all of, his, in all of history to our understanding of religion, Martin Luther said, Bernard is to be preferred above all the others. This was a man who had been born into luxury and affluence, but gave them all up to take a vow of poverty 
but not the typical vow of poverty because at the time most monks took a vow of silence and he just said, I am not taking a vow of silence. I'm taking a vow to preach the gospel. And he wrote these following first stanzas to his well-known hymn, Jesus, Thou Joy of Loving Hearts. And it says this, Jesus, Thou Joy of Loving Hearts, Thou Fount of Life, Thou Light of Men. From the best bliss that earth imparts, we turn unfilled to Thee again. Thy truth unchanged hath ever stood. Thou savest those that on Thee call. To them that seek Thee, Thou art good to them that find thee all in all. In an interesting twist, late in life, Bernard would fall into the exact same trap as the crowds that we read about this morning. He wanted Jesus to be a political solution to the problems that the world was facing, and he agreed to travel around Europe preaching in support of the Second Crusade. His immense gift of persuasion led to thousands upon thousands upon thousands of willing soldiers flocking towards holy war in the holy land, 90% of whom would die before they even got to the battlefront. After the whole tragic disaster was over, the people turned in anger to Bernard. What have you gotten us into? And he accepted their criticism and apologized profusely for missing Jesus in the midst of political fervor and then died just shortly thereafter, an exhausted man who, according to one historian, was simply weary of the world. Jesus will fix everything that is wrong in this world, but he will do it in his time and in his way. And this morning we gather not to bend Jesus to our will, but to bend our knees to his will. He is our king. And so as we prepare to take this reminder of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, would you reflect on the words of this song, and then we will partake together in just a moment.